Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. We're happy that we have visitors with us this evening, and it's kind of tough sometimes when you are visiting a church and you come in and you're, the church is in the middle of a series like I am right now, and uh, we're, we're two and a half years into the book of Revelation, and it's hard to drop folks right down into the to a part of what we're doing here and, and be able to explain everything that's going on. But uh, this is a great book for us to study, and after a few weeks, few weeks break, uh, getting back from my wonderful vacation that all of you knew that I had, um, after that few weeks break, we come back here tonight, and I want to talk to you uh, on the, the sixth part of the message, The King Returns. And we're talking here about the return of Christ after the tribulation. So I'm not talking about the rapture, not the time when Christ comes back and then his people are taken out of the world and uh, meet him in the air, bodies are, or living Christians are transformed, bodies are raised. We're not talking about that particular time. Now I'm thankful that Brother Castro was here last week and he did speak on Sunday evening about the rapture. And that is a very important doctrine of Scripture and it's something that we're looking forward to. We're hopeful for that. But when we're speaking here about the king returning, we're not talking about the doctrine of the rapture. Rather, this is the time when Jesus comes back to this earth to begin his earthly kingdom. And this would be seven years after the rapture has occurred. Now, we definitely do believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. We don't believe that any Christians, anybody that's saved right now, if Christ were to come back today, you're not going to have to wait seven years to go home to be with him. You'll go immediately. Uh, we do believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. But we're speaking here of the time when Christ brings his armies of angels and people that are in heaven, and he comes to this earth, and he begins the kingdom that's upon the earth. And so tonight we're talking about, in part of this, about the deposition of the Antichrist. We're talking about the destruction of the false prophet. We're speaking of Christ's earthly judgment. Now there's also coming an eternal judgment that happens 1,000 years after the time that we're talking about here. And this is also uh, the last act. What I want to talk to you about tonight is the very last thing that happens before Christ begins that millennial kingdom. And what we, uh, you might refer to as the iron-fisted reign of Christ upon the earth. Now, before that happens, there is a scene in verses 17 through 21 in this 19th chapter. And this is a scene of terrible mass destruction, the destruction of God's enemies. I'm going to give you the term for that in just a moment. But before we do, let's look into the Scriptures and read what the Bible has to say about this. Revelation chapter 19, verse number 17, it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, 
and the kings of the earth. Now there the beast refers to the Antichrist. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh." Now, in verses 11 through 16 of this chapter, it describes the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the book is titled after that. It's the revelation of Christ. It's the description of the main event, and that's what the main event is. In verses 11 through 16, that is when Christ comes back to begin his earthly kingdom. And so we've called this particular part of the Scripture, the 19th chapter, verses 11 through 16, are the apex. This is the climax, you might say, the highest point in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns to the earth. And so everything that we've read and studied up to this point is to get us to this scene, And that's when heaven opens and the earth's true ruler, not the Antichrist, not Satan, not the false prophet, not any wicked man, but the earth's true ruler, Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, the master, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, comes to rule upon the earth. I want to list for you the previous points of the message so you can get these down on your listening sheet tonight. And I'm not going to spend any uh, really much time in review of these, but I just want to give you the list of things that we've already talked about in the previous parts of the message. So we, we started with the anticipation of Christ's return. And then it was the appearance of Christ. Thirdly, we spoke of the appellations of Christ. Fourthly, the anger of Christ. Fifthly, the apparel of Christ. And then sixthly, the armies of Christ. All of that is described in verses 11 through 16. The anticipation, that's the many prophecies that we find throughout the Scripture that tell us that Jesus is coming back. The appearance is the way that he comes. The appellations are the different names that are given to him in those particular Scriptures. The anger, that's the fury of his wrath as Christ comes back to this earth to conquer his enemies. The apparel is the clothing that he wears. And the Bible tells us that it's stained with blood. And then the armies are the armies of angels and of saints that come from heaven with him when Christ returns. So now we're going to come to the seventh heading that I want to talk to you about tonight. And this is the term for that awful destruction that we've spoken about just a moment ago. And that term, I think most of you know is Armageddon. Armageddon. Now, that's the term that describes this great catastrophic holocaust at the end. It's a violent battle that bathes the valley of Megiddo in Israel with the blood of men. Now, this is not an obscure notion that you find in Scripture. If I could uh, take you back for just a moment to the first messages that I preached on this, we found that there were a number of Scriptures, many, many Scriptures that tell us uh, in the Old Testament about this particular event. The second coming of Christ is a highly prominent doctrine of Scripture. When Christ comes... The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us a timeline. It doesn't say it's coming in a certain year. People are looking for it right now. There are some who are saying that Christ is going to return on May 21st of this year. 
but we simply don't know because the Bible never tells us when he is going to come. But the Bible does tell us he is coming. Armageddon is a fact. Armageddon is something that's going to happen. We do know he's coming, and there are 1,500 scriptures in the Old Testament that tell something about it, that refer to it. Now, I know that there are a lot of people that say that, well, we don't really need to study the Old Testament scripture. We have the New Testament, and the New Testament has superseded the Old, so we don't really need to go back and look at things that were said there. But if you don't, then you're going to miss a lot of the description and understanding of what happens here in this great battle of Armageddon. Now, uh, you don't want to miss the, the clear things that are spoken here. Now, I want you to turn to, and, and we've read these scriptures already before a couple of times, but I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 63, and then also to uh, Ezekiel chapter 39. And I want to give you once again two of the very clearest scriptures that we have out of the Old Testament on the subject of what we're speaking about here tonight. Now, we have the prophecy in Isaiah first, Isaiah 63, and you could take this scripture in Isaiah 63, and you can lay it right on top of Revelation chapter 19, and you can trace the outline of it, and you would come up with the very same picture that we have here. Now, Isaiah chapter 63, verse number 1, starts with some questions and also gives some answers. The first question, who is this? that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And the answer, I that speak in righteousness mighty to save. Question, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? And the answer, verse number 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is, is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So you can take that prophecy and lay that right on top of verses 11 through 16 in Revelation 19, and you have a perfect picture, two pictures of the very same event. And then if you go over to the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel chapter 39, we had this other great prophet of the Old Testament who also spoke about this. And you can take his prophecy, and you can lay what he has to say on top of the verses we read tonight. Put this on top of verses 17 through 21. In Ezekiel chapter 39, it says this in verse number 17. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl, and to every beast of the field, assemble yourself and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, and bullocks, and all them of the fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken, of my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward." And so these are some very clear scriptures that tell us that we can expect that this great and terrible day of the Lord will come. 
This battle is coming. As I said just a moment ago, Armageddon is a fact. Christ is going to return, and this is what he has on his mind. He has in his mind that there is a day of vengeance, there is a day of bloodshed, there is a battle coming that's unlike any battle that's ever happened in all the history of the world. I mentioned several times as we've been looking at these scriptures that it's not the picture of Christ that most people have. When you go to most churches, they're not going to say anything about this part of the Scripture. They want to present to us the Jesus that's loving, compassionate, and caring. And we talked all about that this morning. That was Jesus in his first advent, when he came to give his life as a ransom for sin, when he came to give himself as an offering for people so they could believe in him and trust him for salvation. That's the first coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is nothing like that. Because Christ is not coming back to this earth ever to be sacrificed again, never to be mocked again, never to be put down again, never to be put on a cross again. Christ is returning to the world in vengeance against his enemies. Now, I think that there are many people, and I know this, there are many people that really don't understand the terminology when you start to talk about Armageddon. They, they want to uh, talk about other types of events and make up things that describe what's going to happen. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out that was called Armageddon. And it was a pretty entertaining movie. Uh, it was the story about a, a giant asteroid that was about to hit the earth. And when the asteroid hits, it means that everybody on the earth is going to be destroyed. And by the time that they discover that this asteroid is coming, there are only 18 days to do something about it. And so what they did, if you remember in this movie, they sent the space shuttle up into the sky up into the space, and the space shuttle landed on the asteroid, and they uh, exploded a nuclear bomb on this asteroid. Now, this might seem a little bit odd to you for me to say this, but for the earth to be destroyed in that way is wishful thinking. You know, wishful thinking? Yes, because if you compare that to how the world is actually going to end, an asteroid would actually be far preferred to what's actually going to happen. An asteroid is actually hopeful compared to the way the world is actually going to end. Now here, the scripture shows us that there's going to be a great gathering of all the world's armies into this location in Israel, and those same armies are going to be cut to pieces with the sharp sword that comes from the Lord's mouth. Now when we speak of that sharp sword, of course we're talking about figurative language, but it describes the command. It describes the word that comes out of the mouth, the, uh, the mouth of Christ that slices and dices the men that are in this battle and it pours out their blood until there is a river of blood that flows for 200 miles in Israel. And I want you to turn back a few pages to chapter 14 in Revelation where this is described. And I want you to remember, Revelation has parenthetical sections and what I mean by that is we'll have some action that's described. There's a break in the action. It'll talk about some other scenes and describe some things for us. And so it's very difficult for you to take Revelation and read from chapter 1 to chapter 22 and, and think that you're reading in a chronological order because you aren't. And so you have these parenthetical sections and you have a pause in the action. And so five chapters before where we are right now, there is a description of the bloodshed at Armageddon. Revelation 14, verse number 14 says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. This is metaphorical language. We're not speaking here about cutting down wheat in a field. We're speaking here about people. The earth is ready to be reaped. That means the the fullness of the sinfulness of the world is now ripe for its destruction. And this is the destruction that's coming. And uh, verse number 17 says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. And there you have another metaphor. The grapes here refer to that sinfulness again. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now there, we're speaking about this valley of Megiddo, Megiddo, where Armageddon is going to take place. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So there you have this river of blood, 1,600 furlongs in length. That's about 200 miles. And this river runs with the blood of Christ's enemies. Why is there so much blood? Well, you add up all the men that are going to be there, and the army that's here in the valley of Megiddo is far greater than any army that's ever been assembled before. You take all the combined armies of all the nations of the world, multiple millions of men, and they're in this valley. Now, it's actually a combination of valleys, and it starts in the northeast of Jerusalem and runs all the way down to the south of Jerusalem for a, for a period or a distance of about 200 miles. And this whole area is filled with these armies of men that come against Christ. Now, that is a scene that's really indescribable. Um, it defies description. We're going to do our best to try to tell you what the Bible has to say about it, but I I don't know if I could even put the picture in your mind of what this is going to be like, but, but what it's going to be like. But we're going to see how it develops. Armageddon is real, but it's nothing at all like Hollywood's idea. Now, let's notice, first of all, the call of the angel. And we find this in verse number 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun... And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. The call of the angel. Now, angels have been quite prominent in this study. We've seen angels many, many times before. Angels are God's messengers. The word angel actually means that. It means a messenger. And here in the book of Revelation, the angels are God's enforcers. They're the ones that carry out much of the activity, the commands of God for what goes on in the book of Revelation. Uh, Angels are ministering spirits. The Bible tells us that. And I think in all the different times that we've talked about angels, we've uh, fairly well, I think, debunked the myth that angels spend all of their time sitting on clouds playing harps. And angels are not people that died. There are a lot of people that think that. Well, an angel, when you die, you get your wings. Isn't that what, what is it, Miracle on 34th Street? Isn't that what it's about? You die and you get your wings, something like that. Well, that's, there's no truth in that at all. Uh, angels are not people that have died. And angels are not little cupids 
little children that fly around, those aren't angels. Angels are mighty warriors that have been created by God, and they exercise the power of God, and they have great destruction whenever God commands. Now, you and I, as believers, we can take comfort in that because the angels are on our side. The holy elect angels are on our side, and God has given angels as our protectors, and they are very powerful. They're not as powerful as God, but they are powerful, and they move whenever God directs them. And we also thank God for this, that as we've seen reading in the book of Matthew, that there are angels that, that are against us. These are evil angels, and they're also very powerful, but they only go as far as God allows them to go. These are not holy. They're not elect angels. They're fallen angels. So what we know is the demons, and they are against us, but they don't have any power against us. Because if you are a child of God, you're protected from those kinds of demons. So demons are are on a leash, you might say, and they can only go as far as God allows them to go. Even Lucifer, Satan, the great adversary, as the Bible describes him, can only go as far as God allows him to go. He's subject to God's power. And we'll see a little bit later what God does with him when this battle is over. So here we have this angel that stands in the sun, and he cries with a loud voice. John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now, I want you to notice first about this angel, the visibility of the angel, his visibility. How does the angel stand in the sun? Well, the angel's not literally in the sun. He's not uh, standing in the hot, burning gases of the sun. But I think what it means here is that the angel stands in the way of the sun. And probably it means that he blocks out the sun because this angel is visible above the brightness of the sun. The angel has the glory of God upon him. Angels proceed out of God's glory. At the resurrection of Christ, you remember the story of how the angel came and rolled away the stone? He rolled away the stone at the tomb. And listen to the description of this angel that's given to us in Matthew chapter 28. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. So here is an angel that's bright as lightning, and that's because he has the presence of the glory of God upon him. You remember when Paul was on the, on the road to Damascus that the glory of God shone around him. And Paul was describing that to King Agrippa. And he says, there was a light that came from heaven that was above the brightness of the sun. And I think that that's what we see here. The brightness here is the brightness of the glory of the angel that's brighter than the light of the sun. And so that's what John means when he says, I saw this angel standing in the sun. He means he's brighter even than the sun. So he's highly visible. The world can see him. And as the sun shines upon Megiddo, the light of the angel shines even brighter than the sun. Now next we see the voice of the angel. The scripture says that he cries with a loud voice. And we've seen that many times before. Uh, Maybe sometime you ought to stop and count up the number of times it talks about loud voices and and, uh, loud speaking and cries and such things as you find in the book of Revelation. They're all through here. In chapter 6, verse number 10, there's the loud voice of martyrs. In chapter 7, verse number 2, it's the loud voice of an angel who cries out to four other angels and tells them to hold back the winds from the earth. 
In the 10th verse of that same chapter, there's a loud voice of multitudes of people in heaven, people of every tribe, of every kindred, of every tongue. In chapter 10, there's Michael the archangel who speaks with a loud voice like the roaring of a lion, the Bible says. In chapter 14, verse number 15, there's a description probably of the same angel that we're talking about here in chapter 19. And it says there, he cries with a loud voice. And then you may remember also in chapter 18, in verse number 1, that there was an angel that came from heaven with power and great glory, so that the whole world, the whole world was lightened with his glory, and he announced the word of God, says, with a strong voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So you might say, in Revelation, there's a whole lot of shouting going on. A whole lot of shouting. Um, At this time uh, of the world's history, nobody's going to need a hearing aid, I don't think. Uh, They'll be able to turn off all the hearing aids because voices are going to be clear. They're booming. They're loud. They're heard everywhere. And in verse number 6 of this 19th chapter, it tells us there that the voices are like mighty thunderings. So there is this angel then above the brightness of the light of the sun. He stands and he calls with a thunderous voice and he calls to all the fowls that fly in the sky. And he tells all the birds to come to a great supper that is about to be served. You may remember earlier in chapter 19 we talked about a supper. This is not that supper. The supper there was the marriage feast of the lamb. And trust me, folks, this supper is a whole lot different than the marriage feast of the lamb. Now, let's go on and talk about this. The angel calls these birds. So I want to talk to you about tonight the carnage for the birds, the carnage for the birds. And we're just going to get started with this, and I'm going to come back to it next week to finish it up. But there's a call for all of these birds to come to this great supper. And we read about that a moment ago in Ezekiel, where it said, Speak unto every feathered fowl, assemble yourselves and come, eat fat till you be full, and drink blood till you be drunken. And so it's speaking of this roadkill, you might put it that way, in the valley of Megiddo. Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah chapter 7. He says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet. Now, speaking of this valley, it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Now, let me catch you up just a little bit on the terminology that's used there. Tophet and Hinnom are the same place, the same valley that we're referring to here close to Jerusalem. And this is a place where there were many, many human sacrifices that were made to the heathen god Molech. And that went on for for many, many years. There were continual fires that burned there. Sacrifices, human sacrifices were made over and over again in this valley. When you get into the New Testament times, this very same valley is a symbol of Gehenna. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into chapter 20. But that is symbolic. This valley is symbolic of the lake of fire where unsaved people are going to be tormented for all of eternity. Now, the significance of that in relation to what we're reading about tonight is that God is going to make a great human sacrifice, so to speak, in that valley. And it's God's intention to do this, to ram down their throats human sacrifices. Oh, they love to make human sacrifices to their false gods. 
And now here God is going to make his own human sacrifice, so to speak, with all these millions that are brought into this valley for slaughter. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, too, that there are so many people that die there that there's not room to bury them all. And so something has to happen with them. Well, one of the things that happens is the fowls of the air, the wild beasts, they come and they eat these dead bodies. So there's a call for all these birds that are flying in the midst of heaven to come. Now there, when the Bible is talking about heaven, it's not speaking of heaven where God lives, not that heaven, but the word means like the atmospheric heavens, like the sky, just like you think of the sky where the birds fly today. So it's speaking here of literal birds that fly in the sky. So the angel speaks bird language, and the birds understand what the angel says, and they all come. Now, I don't think what the angel did, he didn't go down to the sporting goods store and buy a duck call. That's not how he does this. But he speaks the language of the Creator. God is able to speak to all of his creatures. God controls his creation. If you wanted to compare that to something, you could think about Noah and the ark. How did Noah get all of the animals into the ark? What did Noah do? Did he go out searching all over the earth and and did he gather up some cages and some snares and set some traps and capture all of these animals and drag them back to the ark and haul them up there and put them into their place? Well, that's not how it happened. What happened was that God put out the call. God spoke to the animals and those animals came to, to stream from all over the world to the ark. They all started coming two by two The clean animals and the animals for sacrifice, the ones for food and so forth, those came seven by seven. And they came to the ark and they marched right up the ramp and they went right into the cages where they were supposed to go. And they laid down there and they stayed there peacefully and quietly as if it was home sweet home until God told them in the end when the waters had dried up from the earth, get up, it's time to go. And when he did, all the animals got up and they marched out of the ark. They went down the ramp and they spread out all over the whole earth again. You see, God is able to do that. And so this angel speaks the language of the birds and all of them come to the supper that he calls them to. So when the ruler of heaven and earth calls, everyone comes. Whether it's men, whether it's birds, whether it's animals, they come when the ruler of heaven and earth speaks. So here you have an angel then with God's authority. And when the time is right, when this battle is ready to take place, then he calls for the birds to feast upon this carnage. Now let's talk about that part of it, and then we're going to be through for the evening. There's really some fascinating stuff here. And and so uh, we're going to carry on with this next week to try to get all of this in. So I want to talk to you uh, finally tonight about this, and that's the migration the migration of these birds. Now, there are actually two migrations that take place. One, one is for birds and one is for bodies. One is for the fowls of the air and one is for the foes of God. Now, I want to talk to you uh, just finally here tonight about the fowls. Where do all of these birds come from? Well, there's a very interesting feature of Israel geographically, and that is it lies in the path of millions of migratory birds. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, when God promised that he would give Israel or give the land of Canaan to Israel, that it was described as a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses sent spies into the land, and they came back with these great tales of how productive that the land was. 
And there's this one particular story where they went to a place called Eshkel, and they cut down a cluster of grapes from there, and it took two men with a beam between them just to carry back the grapes that they cut off. Israel is a lush green garden. If you go there today, you can go to this very same valley that we're talking about now. And for miles and miles around there, the land produces the best fruits and vegetables anywhere. When we were in Israel just a few years ago, uh, we we stayed at hotels. and, and, And these hotels where we would eat, they just laid out a feast of tomatoes and cucumbers and, and peppers and peaches and apricots and all different kinds of produce that comes from Israel. I mean, some of the best that you've ever tasted. And so every night uh, when our dinner was over, instead of going to the dessert table, I went back to the fresh vegetables. I didn't go to the sweets. I went back to the tomatoes and, and to the peppers, which I particularly like. And those of you that bring me tomatoes, God bless you. You're going to have a special place in heaven for that. But... I love tomatoes, so that's where I would go. I mean, that's that right after supper. I'd go back and I'd hit that, the, all those tomatoes again. And I had so, many, so much acid in my body, it, it ate holes in my socks before I got back. But this, this, is, this is the way it is there. You have this swath of land that connects Africa to the south to Asia in the north. And so where do you think all the birds fly on their migratory routes? And so every year, like clockwork, they head down from the frigid north... And they fly over this little strip of land that's called Israel, and they head down to the south. Now, why do you think that they do that? Why do they fly over Israel? Because there's food there. There's plenty of food for them. It's it's a lush garden, as I've just said. Now, if you go to the west of Israel, what do you have? The Mediterranean Sea. Well, the birds aren't going to fly over there. There's nothing for them to eat. And they don't fly over to the east because you get over there, you've got Syria, Iraq, Iran. So they don't fly down that way. That's all desert area. So what they do is they fly right over Israel because on that trip there's plenty of food to get them fattened up and they can make their, make their way all the way down to the south. Now on that flight, they, they don't have to pay $10 for a stale sandwich uh, like you do on the airlines today. But they have plenty of food to eat because of the productivity of the land. And there are so many birds that fly over Israel. This is actually true now. There are so many birds that fly over Israel that the migratory routes of the birds has actually become, or did become, a great danger to aviation. If you go to Israel today, you'll notice something there. You'll see jet fighters flying across the sky all of the time. I mean, there are a lot of enemies around Israel. On every side, they have enemies. From within, there are enemies. And so they're always patrolling the area. You go there and you find uh, into all the cities and you'll find teenagers are conscripted into the army and they have to serve at least a tour. Whether you're male or female, you have to serve in the army and you go into Jerusalem or a place like that and you'll see these teenagers with automatic rifles slung over their shoulders. you imagine what would happen if we did that here? Now in Israel, the teenagers don't shoot at each other. If you did that here, we'd be very quickly rid of all teenagers. I don't know if that's such a bad thing or not. We might put that into place. But, um, so the jets are flying over Israel. You have all their, they're flying for the protection. And the migratory birds became a problem. So the Israeli Air Force has all of these training videos about this. And they have these videos of birds flying into the cockpits of jet fighters and those planes crashing because of that. And the birds get sucked up into the jet engines. It's also a danger for commercial aviation. 
uh, because of all the birds that are flying over. So what they did was they began to study the birds. Now, God has given birds these incredible instincts so that you have the same kinds of birds that fly over Israel at the same time of year and at the same altitude. And so they studied the birds to find out where they're going to be at this particular time of the year and what the fighters do and what the commercial airlines do is they avoid that same space of air where the birds are flying. Now, that kind of gives you an idea of how this kind of thing can take place. How do all these birds get there? Well, it's already a great migratory route. There's already all these birds that are flying over Israel anyway. And so uh, you get a feeling here for how that in this 200-mile stretch of all these dead bodies, that there are all these birds that can feast upon that carnage. And so the signal is given by the angel. The birds begin the migration, and they come to this place... Only they don't come for the fruits and vegetables now. They come for the bodies of men, the the carrion-eating birds, to eat the carnage that's there, the flesh of men. Now, it's a great supper, and so the birds come, the eagles, the vultures, the hawks. might even be possible that what God does is he changes the nature of other types of birds. So I don't know. Maybe there'll be ducks there too, and they're going to be eating the flesh of men. Well, I'm going to stop at that place And I want to talk to you uh, again about the migration of the armies. But before we go go on to that, it's going to take some more time. And so we're getting overtime here tonight. I don't want to get into it. But I want to just let you know this, folks, that this is the way that the world is going to end. It is useless. It is futile for us to look for the world to actually get better. It just ain't going to happen. Excuse my French, whatever. It's not going to happen. It ain't going to happen. The world is not going to get better. We needn't expect that the the kingdom of Christ is going to slowly come in. Finally, the whole world is going to be one to Jesus Christ, and everything is going to be just fine. This is what has to happen first. This is very clear, I think, in the Scripture. This has to happen first. But once again, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are on the right side of Armageddon. And you're not going to be called into this valley according to some migratory route. You're not going to be called there to do battle against the Lord. Instead, the way that you get to this battle, and trust me on this as well, folks, you're going to be in the battle. But you don't come from the earth. You come from above. And you come with Christ and his army of angels and redeemed men. And as we get into this a little bit further, you'll see there's not really much of a fight at all. You really don't have to do very much at all because all that God does, he speaks, and it's over. He reaps the earth, and it's over. Well, it's a wonderful story that we have here in Revelation. Somewhat frightening, I think, it would be to me if I was not a believer in Jesus Christ. But thank the Lord I know him, and I'm looking for his return. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to look into your word tonight. We just pray, Lord, that you would bless and that you would help us to clearly understand what you'd have us to know about the book of Revelation and just the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that he will return. Those of us that are living now and believing in Christ, whether we are, uh, have our bodies raised in the resurrection or whether Jesus should come tomorrow, we know that we're going home to be with him. So I pray for anyone here today who might not know you as Lord and Savior. Speak to their hearts. Turn them around. Cause them to trust in you for their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.